and welcome to Peach Pod, our part two of our first show in a little while, the second part of our freewheeling discussion. Um, so if you listened to part one yesterday, you would have heard us begin this show by saying that it's been a little while since we've talked. It's been a little while since we talked in real life, not even just in doing a podcast episode. So there was a lot to catch up on. And then we ended up going on for an entire hour about what's been going on nationally. So we decided to split this up into parts one and part two. In this episode, we're going to recap what happened at the end of the legislative session, talk a little bit about why that ending was a little bit disappointing, and then just catch up on what other political news has been going on in the state. So you get a little bit of two-for-one Peach Pod this week. And then um, tomorrow, so. we're going to talk about our personal lives. It's going to be great. <laughs> and that one, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even entertain that idea. Um, that voice you hear, you probably already know this. We say this every time. That voice you hear is Luke Boggs. Uh, Luke, how are you hanging in there Great. the last time we talked. I could go for three more hours. All right. I cannot. Um, With that, we are going to get started on what's going on in Georgia. Um, Let's just start with the close of the legislative session. We'll try to be a little more structured with our Georgia conversation. Um, This, I saw in multiple places, this was kind of called the do-nothing Georgia legislature. And while... A lot of things happened. A lot of important policy changes happened on a lot of sort of lower level, smaller issues. These are the things that we very often get into on this show. The big discussions that dominated the headlines, that dominated a lot of our conversations this session, basically once you got to the end, not a lot of progress was made. What is your summation, Luke, of just where we ended up at the end of the 2017 legislative session? I think it's extremely clear that a lot of people want to be the governor of the state of Georgia. And while that sounds irrelevant to the session, it's really, really not because a lot of the things that didn't happen, I think were actually a a direct result of the mad dash for the escalators to higher office in the state. And this is important to remember because, and we're going to get into this later in this conversation too, but like in Georgia, if you decide to run for higher office, you cannot hold on to your lower office and you have to give it up. So there's a lot of risk to running for higher office in Georgia because you're effectively ending your career if you are not successfully elected. And so because of that, there's a lot of really heavy tensions even this far out from the election. And so there's a lot of decisions that were made and a lot of bills that were held up and held back and a lot of conversations that were punted until next year because of those conversations and those people angling already to be the governor or the lieutenant governor or the secretary of state of Georgia. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, despite this being a sleepy session, there were a couple of the bigger bills that we were discussing actually that did move. Um, most notably, at least to me, and from what I was hearing uh, in you know around around here, is that campus carry did actually pass, and I think that is probably the biggest question mark about what is going to happen with that piece of legislation. And to give you a little bit of history on it, that's relevant to where we are now, is that uh, campus carry was a bill that. Hey, you're back. Lost you for a sec. Okay. (laughs) So, Campus Carry, and to give you a little bit of history here, 
Canvas Carey passed last year over the objections of Governor Nathan Deal. He had a couple things that he really wanted the legislature to address regarding some areas where high school students could be on college campuses and nurseries and faculty offices and stuff like that. He wanted that addressed in the final piece of legislation, and it was not. And they they kind of blatantly passed the bill over his objections that he asked them to fix. And so he vetoed it. This year, they came up with a big of a solution that fixed most of the things that the governor wanted fixed, but not everything. And so there's there's a discussion that he still might veto it, and there's a lot of people pushing really hard and calling really hard, and if you care about this issue, I highly recommend that you call the governor's office to ask him to veto it, because it's still not going to really make campuses safer. It's an issue that I really think is one that's not being discussed legitimately in that the problems that it's trying to solve are not the reasons why the bill's being pursued and it's not the best way to solve those problems. Because at the end of the day, the only reason someone would want a gun on campus is for security reasons. And if your campus is not secure enough and that's a legitimate concern then making it the wild west is probably not the best way to fix that problem um so it's gonna be interesting to see and just as a side note and this is fascinating to me so the final version of the bill was actually somewhat hastily put together and they forgot an oxford comma and because of that there is a very awkward phrasing that suggests that because what they clearly wanted was that faculty offices and places where disciplinary hearings happen could not have guns brought to them, because, but because they didn't have a comma, it now reads as if a faculty office that is also used for disciplinary hearings, no guns are allowed there. So due to that lack of comma, they have some legislative problems that might end up being one of the reasons this bill gets vetoed. So... Lesson for everyone, if you're writing legislation, check it twice. I'm very pro-Oxford comma. Um, yeah, I'm going to be, I don't know, I'm going to be really surprised if he vetoes this bill. I think he was able, I think the governor was able to kind of lean on the changes that he made public that he wanted in last year's version that were not addressed. And then he sort of dressed up some of the language in his veto message, and we'll share last year's veto message on the the show notes. Uh, but he, you know, he used some of the same language that's come from a court decision uh, uh, brief written by Justice Scalia when he was alive about colleges being sanctuaries of learning and places that t- guns have not traditionally been allowed. Um, but I don't. Somehow it all felt a little convenient like there were just enough excuses for him to say we're just not there yet and to and this year the window really shrank in terms of excuses to say that we're just not there yet and so I don't know if he's gonna I mean he is free of political pressure because he's not running for re-election but he basically sort of signaled last year that like if people had listened to me I would have been more on board for this idea and it, I think it's harder for him to make that case this year unless he comes out and is just like, no, actually, I have a principle that I don't believe guns should be allowed on campus. And my sort of dilly-dallying on this issue the last couple of years was really just hiding what I 
you know, it was a little bit politically painful for me to say two years ago, which is that I just don't think guns should be on campus. I don't know. He's going to have to make one of those two choices. If he decides to veto it, he almost has to fall back on principle at this point. Um, so I, I sort of, I will be surprised if he vetoes it. I think he's more likely to sign it. Um, I wonder though, this is something that the board of regents does not want. The university system of Georgia does not want it. And there was a, a similar law passed in Arkansas that allows campus carry that if I'm remembering correctly, it has many fewer restrictions than the, than the Georgia law has. I think you can bring a gun to a football game or have a gun on campus on a, on a football weekend. And there was a, a SEC country article, a, a sports article about how football players at Arkansas were concerned about what the impact of that bill was going to be um, to have, you know, drunken college football fans carrying guns on college football Saturdays. I mean, that to me is just like a recipe for disaster, even more so than the bill that Georgia that made it out of the legislature this session. I kind of wonder, I mean, I just cannot foresee something tragic not happening as a result of some of these bills in different states. Georgia might be the unlucky one, but it might be Arkansas. And then when that happens, the exceptions and carve-outs and rollbacks kind of start to pour in that basically make this bill much less than what uh, its critics feared it was going to be when, you know, this whole campus carry debate first started. Yeah, unfortunately, I have to agree with you there. I, I don't see this ending well. I, I think there's only one or two scenarios for this is that either nothing happens and no one really cares and we kind of forget that this is a thing and it just becomes normal or something really awful happens and we have to address it and roll it back. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it will be the first one. Hopefully we're just all overly concerned about this and it's not a big deal. I highly doubt that that's the case, but I would be very happy to be pleasantly surprised about that. Um, the next thing I think we should talk about, because that was a bit heavy, we should talk about something lighter. How is my yacht? Will it be able to be fixed in the state of Georgia for cheaper? It will be able to be fixed in the state of Georgia for cheaper. Yes. Um, the yacht tax break did pass. Now, we talked a little bit about this before. I think Charlie Harper wrote an article earlier this week that we'll share in the show notes that I, th- I think is worth considering. I think if you're, I think if you attack this bill as just sort of a giveaway to yacht owners, I think you misunderstand what the purpose of the bill was. I think there is a criticism criticism of this bill that I think is a little more moderate and a little more acceptable. So, you know, the this sort of like blanket criticism that could come from Democrats on this is that you know, we have issues where our schools are underfunded and we're not we haven't expanded the Medicaid program like we could. We're we're not investing in vulnerable low income people in this state and then we give a tax break to yacht owners. The argument that Charlie Harper makes in his piece is that it's not about the yacht owners. It's about developing an industry in the state of Georgia. And the fact is that we don't have one. So right now we don't collect any taxes at all on the repair of yachts in this state because it doesn't happen. It's not a taxable activity in this state. And the idea is if this incentive is good enough, then around the around Savannah and around our our Atlantic coast, there will become, you know, yacht businesses, yacht repair businesses will be formed because of this tax change. And then we'll collect some taxes. It would be a lower amount 
than if the break didn't exist, but it will be some where there is currently none. Um, my, just to finish up the thought, my criticism is just that when you have an economic strategy that is just sort of this piecemeal build an industry here, build an industry there. I don't, I mean, I just don't know that that many Georgians are going to benefit from this tax break. And I don't, I don't know how, you know, it's, it, to me, in my mind, it's different from the film industry and in that we have a very thriving film industry. It's, we, I think we produce like the second most films in the state. I think it's not country, clear that yeah. we're just, or the country, it's not clear that we're, going to be the destination for everyone to bring their fancy yacht and get it repaired here because of this tax break. But I don't, maybe I'm selling it. Well, now I'm going to take my tongue firmly out of my cheek and say, I don't know. That might be right. And that's something that like we would very clearly be able to get the data from if that became the case, that if we did become the yacht destination, because contrary to what your line of thinking is, as far as I'm aware, I could be wrong. I think the film industry growing in Georgia was very much so related to that tax break. Like, yeah, I, think, I think it was. I think that's why, like, the film industry is so big here is because our tax break is really, really good. Um, and and so, it was better than every other state except right. for California. Well, I think the break is better than the one that California offers, but the industry is so already embedded there that we can't just drag the entire film industry out of right. California and bring it here. But Right. So if it is a situation where there isn't much of a yacht industry here in the state and having this tax break would help develop one, then, I mean, that would be a net positive for the state of Georgia if we increase our overall tax revenue. So, yes, we're getting less revenue from individual yacht repair businesses but like if we have just for sake of easy numbers like five and then we go to having 50 we're gonna make a ton more money as a state that way and i'm okay with that that's great what's hilarious about this though is that's picking winners and losers and that's having the government interfere in the economy which republicans say they hate to do and they criticize democrats for doing all the time so what i find really really funny is that governor deal and the republicans of the state house like really harp on georgia being the best state for business and really harp on you know them being this great business state but the way they do it is like heavily manipulating the economy in really minute ways. The so. the interesting thing on that is that Charlie Harper basically argues in his piece that it is a conservative pro-business position to be in favor of tax breaks like these to help develop industries and that you maybe don't want to do it at the national level because maybe the national level doesn't understand industry dynamics within a certain state and it gives the ability for different states to make different choices based on what industries could locate there. My underlying criticism, I think he's probably right on that point. It is probably right that if we have no yacht repair business now and we have one in two years because of this tax break, that's a net positive. But that is an approach to developing and encouraging job growth in the economy that is just this sort of like scattershot, one here, one there. And it's sort of, you know, this idea 
to me is seen through the way Governor Deal announces, you know, new businesses that are bringing jobs into Georgia. It's great that Caterpillar is just outside of Athens and employs, I don't know, probably like 100 people or something like it's that. It's actually and, in Athens now. They changed the boundaries. Oh, they did? Yes. I didn't realize that. Yes. And it's it's great for these car manufacturers to locate in different places. And, and we're battling with Alabama and South Carolina for you know, business from car manufacturers for business from, you know, big manufacturing industries like Boeing and things like that. Um, But it's sort of like piecemeal here and there. If you're going to get one of those jobs in that industry, that's great. You're economically much better off. The different argument that I don't see made enough, and it's a difficult argument to make, is that we would get further by not favoring one industry or another or taking this sort of like piecemeal approach, we would get further by making broader base investments in education that make our people more trained and that they would on their own create the industries that are going to thrive in the state and that those industries don't need special tax treatment to be created. They need human capital investments from people with more advanced, more technological skills and that that is sort of a broader based route that would also provide more relief to children right now who are in schools who would, under current policies, grow up and be poor. If you made broader based investments in skill training in schools, those kids would grow up to be business founders and entrepreneurs. And that's sort of a separate different philosophy of how to grow the economy. Ironically, it's more laissez-faire. It's saying, we're going to give you the education and we're going to see what happens after that. We don't entirely know. And the Republican strategy, at least in a lot of Southern states, including us, has been a little bit more command and control of this industry is going to get a tax break, this industry is going to get a tax break, and then we're going to tout every time that industry promotes new jobs. And I don't know which one on net is better. My hunch is that a broader base strategy that is education first is better than just sort of piecemeal tax break here, tax break there. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think that's not. I don't know. It's tough. It's tough to know because I feel like there's some advantages to the piecemeal strategy in that you can actively know what like the strengths of the state are. You know, because, like, for example, like, Alaska is not going to do a film credit in the same way that we do because not a lot of movies, like, practically could be filmed in Alaska. It's not a smart strategy for them. So that I feel I feel like the ultimate solution should probably be a, 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 a you know, a combination of both, you know, where you're, you're you are investing in education the way you should, which you should always be doing that. But then you also have this supplementing your overall strategy as well. Um, just to continue on that thought, the the argument that I think goes against the idea that it it would be it would be too provocative to call them central planners, but the idea is that when you do this sort of tax break approach to economic development, you are making decisions on the state level about what industries will succeed and what will fail. One industry that Georgia lawmakers are interested in pouring investment into is industries that will revitalize rural Georgia. And so they passed a plan this session that would provide $60 million in tax credits to companies that invest in rural Georgia businesses. But this is a continuation of a program that has been supported by 
different by a small group of investors that think that they can provide investment that revitalizes rural economies. Uh, this has come up in different forms. It's come up in a form known as CAPCO in the past. It's also come up in the form of new markets in the past. These are just different names. Previous versions of this bill had been defeated, but this legislature, this session, passed a version of this that was meant to increase investment in rural businesses. And it just nationwide, it just does not have a good track record. And so I think that this is something that kind of flew under the radar. It ended up getting passed in kind of the last minute of session after it was defeated and then tacked onto another bill. Um, but it it's just, to me, the weakness is that here's an economic development strategy that was not debated, was tacked onto a bill at the last minute of the session, um, and it is in the same sort of version of this sort of tax credit economic development idea, and it's one that has failed in other places. Um, and so I don't know, for, for various reasons, this idea may not be a good one because it's not something that the state has real debates on when it ends up being passed at 1130 on the la- on day 40 of session. Um, and so I, I think that there are, whether or not you could argue abstractly for an effective tax credit-based economic development platform from a Republican governor. The fact that this CAPCO program, which has been unsuccessful in other states, was passed at kind of the last minute is an argument against that strategy. And the, you know, the, the connecting point to that is that we didn't really have, and we've sort of dodged the big debates about education and skill development in the state in the past few years. We didn't do the education funding formula reform we did a version of the school turnaround plan, but that is really limited to improving low-performing schools. It's not necessarily geared to getting all students ready for the more advanced skills that are needed. Um, I just think that we aren't in a place, especially with this do-nothing legislature that we've had, to really get it right on this economic development question every time. And I think this rural program... Um, is just an example of that that would kind of just flew under the radar. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think you're absolutely right that we're not willing, for whatever reason in the state, to have a larger conversation about like what the economy of the future is going to be, and that we don't have a very broad based vision for how to push the state forward, and it does seem like we're kind of micro-targeting industries and trying to create a successful economy over that while we're ignoring or at least not, you know, not performing routine maintenance on the fundamentals. I think that will eventually catch up with us in a significant way. Um, With that, though, you want to move on to the sanctuary campuses bill? Yeah, let's talk about that one a little bit. So we talked about that bill earlier. Um, what did it end up doing? Do you know? So it, it ended up passing. Um, now, the chance that it's actually going to have a very negative impact on students is relatively minimal at this point. And that is because Emory University came out and said that they are not adopting a sanctuary policy that would be in violation of this law that was pushed by earlier heart that we've talked about before. Um, now, if they came back around and changed their mind later, if in some instance, the student body kind of forced the hand of 
the administration at Emory University, um, then they could fall under the consequences of this law. This includes Emory and other private schools. Um, I think it's relatively unlikely that a state school would fall under this, both because they are a state school that has to follow the laws of the state and would risk having their funding revoked if they didn't. Um, and because I don't, I don't think the student body at like UGA or tech or Kennesaw state is, is pushing for this in the way that some of the private more liberal college student bodies are. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And while I think the policy in itself is just stupid, (laughs) it's, it's really kind of a pointless policy. I'm not really sure why we see the need to pursue it. I think it's good that it's not going to affect anybody um, in the student bodies. Uh, but at the same time, it's going to affect a lot of people who could have potentially been students and it's going to shut the door to them. And then if they're, and there's definitely some students that our immigration policies are going to affect. So, um, Although I think those are separate from this bill. I mean, an undocumented student could still attend college at Emory University. That isn't a violation of state law, as far as I'm aware. If if I'm wrong on that, uh, feel free to definitely send a correction along. But, but what I learned as this bill was debated was that it's not about keeping undocumented students out of Emory University. It's just that if ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, federal authorities come onto Emory University's campus um, and want to make an arrest of an undocumented person, either a student or a worker on campus, the university can't obstruct federal authorities from, you know, from carrying out the job that they showed up to do. Um, So, I mean, it, it plays into the larger idea that there is likely to be a chilling effect for undocumented immigrants in a lot of areas they're like they're less likely to report crimes or show up at court to sort of have crimes adjudicated because they might get arrested at a courthouse they might be less likely to sign up for health care programs or send their children to school because that's a deportation risk and so that same risk would apply for a undocumented student or undocumented worker at emory um that's kind of separate from the sanctuary campus bill and the policy on the federal level does not look like it's going to go in the right direction, at least from what Attorney General Jeff Sessions said today, uh, which he referred to um, stopping and detaining illegal immigrants as, you know, getting rid of the filth. We'll we'll put the full quote in there, but it was it was something that was just like the the stereotype of what you thought Jeff Sessions would say is exactly what he said today in a in a speech at the border. And at least um, in that sense, Jeff Sessions has not let us down. Yeah, he is he is everything we thought he was going to be, which is everything we didn't want in an attorney general. Um, the other early heart bill that we talked a lot about this session that did uh, make it up to the final day, but ultimately did not cross the finish line and get to the governor's desk is the campus rape bill. Um, this is one that we talked about in what I think was our most important episode that we did this session. Um, this was a real testament to advocacy at the state level, to the groups that got involved to oppose this bill. Um, it really, it didn't muddy the waters for Earl Earhart. He is still 
this is still something I think he is passionate about, but I think it, it made the state Senate think twice because they didn't put this bill up for a vote. Um, it wasn't one that, you know, died in the last moments of session because it just, there wasn't enough time. It was something that the state Senate really wasn't that interested in pursuing. Though it did briefly come back as a zombie bill because it did take over another bill uh, for a it while. It did, but there. I think the state so, Senate beat it twice. The state Senate, I think, ignored it twice, I should I, say. I think so. So, yeah, not not insignificantly, this bill will probably be back in some way, shape, or form just due to how hard some of the people in the House seem to be pushing it. Yeah, the other thing to remember about bills as we kind of recap the end of session here is that Georgia has a two-year cycle on the session, so everything that was potentially viable at the end of day 40 is viable on day one of the 2018 legislative session. Now, the second years, they tend to be more quiet because they're election years and politicians don't want to do things that open them up to election liability. So I I would find it, I don't, my prediction on this bill is that it doesn't have a great chance for next year um, because if it got the grassroots opposition that it did this time around, if it gets it next time around, that's going to look like a real election liability. Because it, to me, at least in the media and sort of how this bill was understood, the activists really won the argument that this was not a bill that was going to be a good thing for victims of sexual assault. Um, and there was a bipartisan push between Scott Holcomb and House Speaker David Ralston on making good progress in this area about testing rape kits and making sure that this was a crime that was taken seriously in Georgia. I don't think legislative leadership wants to go backwards on that. And this bill, despite, you know, maybe the positive intention of trying to ensure due process for those accused of sexual assault on campus, Earlier Hart never made a convincing case on this bill. And I think he's lost this argument. I don't think it's going to go anywhere next year. Although that's not something to rest your laurels on if you're an activist on this issue. Yeah, I, I think ultimately this is going to be one of those things like Rifra where there's a hard fight on each side of it each year. And it's going to be a difficult thing to uh, make go away gently into the night. Um, Let's get into the other place where Rifra kind of reared its ugly head in this legislative session, and that was the adoption bill. Um, so we didn't talk much about this during session this was a relatively quiet rewrite of georgia's adoption laws for the first time since the early 1990s um it was something that advocates around children's issues around children and legal issues wanted to see done and apparently this is from reporting there's been a lot of years of work from attorneys and other advocates for children that have gone into this rewrite of this bill passed the house with big bipartisan majorities there was you know essentially nothing wrong with it it was a lot of streamlining and updating of the adoption process and then when it got to the senate there were senators who wanted to tack on an amendment that would allow adoption agencies to essentially discriminate against lgbt couples in the adoption process by basically not adopting to them if they didn't want to that would have been legal under georgia law um, the and, house, and as, as usual, all hell breaks out in the Senate. Yeah. Um, and although it's ironic because all hell did not break out in the Senate on the campus rape bill, but the exception the, that proves the rule. Yeah. Um, 
So session essentially ended. This was a great anecdote from AJC reporting. Session essentially ended when Casey Cagle picked up the phone, leader of the state Senate, picked up the phone, called over to his counterpart, David Ralston, leader of the House, and said the adoption bill is dead. Um, And shortly after that, session ended on both sides of the chamber because that was essentially what they were waiting on. They were waiting to see if there was going to be a resolution, if they were going to be able to get the, the clean adoption bill without the anti-LGBT language out of the Senate and get it to the governor's desk. And when that was not going to be the case, there were not going to be the votes for this bill in the Senate to pass it without that language, uh, both the House and the Senate pretty much adjourned at close to 1 a.m. on sine die. So one interesting anecdote in this, do you know who was responsible for the rewrite in the 1990s of the adoption laws in the state of Georgia? Was that Nan Oreck? No, it was one was state that? senator, Nathaniel Deal. It was Nathan Deal. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, I did not know that. part of the reason why the uh, clean adoption bill was such an important thing and actually something that they were successfully able to push is because, at least from my understanding, that this was something Nathan Deal wanted as well, that he really cared about them fixing the adoption laws or updating them more more than anything and that he was upset about the fact that they were not going to pass the cling one and so i think that's also part of the reason why the um anti-lbgt version did not hit his desk either because it seems pretty clear that he would not have been happy with that i don't even know that it would have made it out of so if the senate it probably had wouldn't make out of the, the house either. bill i don't think it would i'm not sure that david rosson would have let it go through it was it was disappointing to a lot of advocates. It, it was disappointing to me as an observer because this was an issue that made it through the house in a serious manner without. Yeah. Well, these kind of uh, that's bills, what's so upsetting language. about it. Cause I mean, this was a good piece of legislation that they worked on for a really long time and we really needed to do and we needed to update this stuff. And it just didn't happen because some, you know, senators, uh, to be polite, uh, decided to make a political issue out of something that's really important you know if you if you feel so strongly that um you know gay people in the state of georgia shouldn't be able to adopt folks then put that in a separate bill don't hijack this important piece of legislation because of that and obviously there's political reasons to do that and there's you know there definitely opportune way to do that but at the end of the day it's not productive and it's too important of an issue to um to to let it die because and this is something that you know has been reported a lot throughout the state of georgia and throughout the country there are far more kids that need to be adopted and need loving homes than there are parents willing to take them on and so as an issue of the state government and what our policy should be, it's insane to, regardless of how you feel about gay couples, it's insane to say, no, we don't want your help in taking care of these kids because right now we have far more than we can deal with. So as a matter of state policy, this is not smart, regardless of what your um, beliefs are towards you know gay marriage. Yeah, and the, the other aspect of that is the population of foster children is surging right now because of the opioid epidemic. And it's, it's, it hasn't hit Georgia as bad as a state like West Virginia, but it is a real issue in the state of Georgia. And it has, 
contributed to the increase in the number of foster kids in the state. And so streamlining the adoption process and, and modernizing it to make sure that it works to connect kids to homes right now is very important because a lot of parents who are addicted to prescription painkillers or, or opioids or heroin or, or other drugs are not fit to raise these children. And so it's not just that we've got an old law that we need to clean up, but we could do it sometime. We don't have to do it right. Like it needs to be done so that we can address this issue in the state. So it is, it is really disappointing from that perspective. Um, but that is one that hopefully cooler heads will prevail or uh, at least Casey Cagle will decide that getting that issue done is something that would be good for his governor's campaign. Uh, so maybe it will get done next year over the objections of those senators who wanted to offer that language. Um, the other, I think the last bill that we'll touch on before we touch on some other political news in Georgia is the debate over tax credits for music, for the music industry in Georgia. Um, this was one that was partially completed, um, and there there's a great interview with well, friend of the pod, Spencer Fry, that we will share in the show notes and flagpole the uh, you know alternative magazine in Athens, where he talks about how they got a version of this bill done where it would benefit sort of bigger production companies that have larger productions so long as some of that activity occurs here in Georgia. But if you're thinking about smaller startup artists. A lot of those happen to be in Spencer's district in Athens, but then there's some all over the state. There's sort of a, you know, the, the budding country music industry that ends up once you get big enough, you end up in Nashville and you, and you leave the state of Georgia. Um, there's a lot of artists that would not be able to take advantage of a tax credit like that. Um, I think that this is somewhat separate than the broader, economic development critique that we had, because I think that there is an interest in promoting arts in the state of Georgia. And even if it's not, you know, some major economic development driving engine, sort of in the way that the film industry is not the entire economy of Georgia, but there is something to be said about having thriving arts industries in the state and having that be a career option for kids as they come out of our high schools and our colleges. And not to mention the fact that the music industry has changed so radically in the past 10 years, 20 years. I mean, just it's evolved in such a way that it's really hard to make money in the music industry in the way that it wasn't as hard, you know, back 20, 30 years ago. And so I think any sort of relief that can be given to artists in the state of Georgia, I think it's a good idea because as you were saying, and I mean, I think anybody would say this, like everybody wants like music to be around them like everyone wants to have local bands that can go here and you know cds for or digital downloads of artists from your state and from your area i think everybody's into that and so making that industry viable again is really important because under the current structure of how musicians get paid and how they get taxed on that on that is not really viable for a lot of smaller artists. So I think this is a good effort that uh, I hope comes back and is able to be successful next time around. The other thing to note too, is that it's, it's easier to create and share your music than it ever has been before. I mean, we're somewhat beneficiaries of this. We aren't making music, but we're making podcasts and, and there are platforms for music for your ears. Yeah. 
there are platforms for uh, you know our audience, you guys, to listen to us that would not have been viable. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we would have had to have a radio station to do this kind of show. And it's even easier for people who produce music. So I think that this is a good recognition of the fact that there are going to be musicians that come up in the state of Georgia. And if we don't have policies that help keep them here, they're going to go to Nashville, they're going to go to New York, they're going to go to California. They're not going to stay here. Um, and I think the success of the film tax credit is a good example for the, what the music tax credit could do. I do think that this one, like all of the tax credits we do, we should at least know what the impact is and have, find a way to have a better understanding of what that tax break means for the economy. Um, like we should the yacht tax break, like we should all of them. Um, but I think that this is a, is a good effort to try to create a music industry here or try to keep it here, um, which I know our friends over in Nashville may not love, but there's a lot of great, I love a lot of Georgia country music artists. And so I, I would like to see them be able to stay in the state to make their music with that. I think we'll, we'll, we'll get out of uh, the end of the legislative session. We'll talk a little bit about this, this special election. Um, so there, there are 18, candidate. This blows my mind. There are 18 candidates running to replace Tom Price. We've talked a little bit about this special election on the show, but since we've talked about it, there's been a debate that was hosted by the Atlanta Press Club. I've seen on Twitter, there's been some smaller debates, some smaller events, but this really has become a race between John Ossoff, the, at least in my opinion, anointed candidate on the Democratic side against either Bob Gray, Karen Handel, or Judson Hill on the Republican side. Um, And what I think will happen is that one of the three of those is going to end up in a runoff against John Ossoff. Um, And that is where I think this race is really going to heat up because you're either going to have a very pure referendum on the Trump administration with John make Trump furious Ossoff versus Bob Gray, who seems to have a love affair with the Trump administration and and making America great again and all of that. Um, Those two would be the polar opposite candidates of this race. If they make it into the runoff, Karen Handel, Justin Hill, they kind of fall a little bit in the middle of the, the Trump referendum idea, but they are solid experienced Republican uh, public officials in the state of Georgia. Um, it would be surprising to me if any of the other uh, 14 candidates in the race was to be the one that lands in the runoff. Yeah, so as we're having this conversation, it's 922 on Tuesday. There's a special election in the congressional di- fourth congressional district in Kansas. And James Thompson, who's the Democrat candidate, is ahead with 54% of the vote and about half of the precincts in. So So why do we care about Kansas? We care about Kansas because this is not a district that a Democrat should be winning. And in the same way, the 6th Congressional District is not a district that a Democrat should be winning. And something that I don't think you mentioned is that Ossoff is winging in the polling pretty far ahead of the rest of the candidates. Now, to be fair... There are two independents in the race, and there's a total of five Democrats in the race, and then everyone else is a Republican. So it's not really surprising that Ossoff was able to consolidate the Democrats, um, 
that were running. And again, let let let's let's be fair. He was anointed, undeniably, because anointed by the Republicans, co- most likely. Well, not only that. I mean, two of our sitting congressmen highly recruited him to run. Both Hank Johnson and John Lewis were very pivotal in getting him to run. Um, additionally. Just by looking at the resume of the other Democrats, I think Ossoff probably is the strongest contender and that he definitely had the ability to raise money unlike any of the other candidates. And I think it's not a coincidence that the other four Democrats combined don't have 1% of the vote. Uh, that doesn't just happen when you coordinate someone. Uh, and, and that's significant because to see... Someone like Jim Barksdale, who was also coordinated by the state party, he managed to get like 60% of the vote and had a very strong challenger who got about 40% of the vote in the Democratic primary. So Ossoff, assuming that the polling is somewhat correct, seems to have like earned his status as the anointed candidate. Um, I don't want to raise people's hopes and expectations, but if I woke up on April 19th and Ossoff won without a runoff, I would not be shocked. I would be surprised, but I would not be shocked. And the reason that is, is because the amount of energy that has been put on this race is really, really insane. Um, as has been mentioned uh, earlier in this show, uh, I was the executive vice president of the Young Democrats of Georgia. I'm now the president of the Young Democrats of Georgia. And literally congratulations, all of, thank you. Um, Literally, it's all my membership is talking about. Like, we are obsessed with this race. Um, I know this weekend, UGA students are going out to Canvas for him. UGA students went last weekend. Um, Everyone is really, really motivated in this race. So, while Ossoff's raised like $8 million, which, again, I I need you to let that sink in. He has raised $8 million. As my recollection... Just That's more than Michelle that, Nung and Jason Carter raised. Well, it it's twice the amount of the most well-funded candidate from a regular congressional election in 2016. There was a candidate in Florida who I think dumped like $3 million into his own campaign. Um, I'll dig up the detail on that, but I read that earlier this week. Yeah. It's a boatload of money. It's an yeah. absurd amount of money. It's an insane amount of money. Now, to be fair, 95% of that is from outside of the state of Georgia. However, I don't think that really matters because no one knows that fact because literally like the next Republican, I think, has less than $500,000 to spend against him. And that's why whenever you see ads on TV, most of them are from outside congressional groups and most of the ads that you see supporting Ossoff are Ossoff's ads. And that is somewhat to do with the laws about coordination and the rules that the parties have set up about endorsing people in primaries. But I mean, Ossoff has been pretty much all over the airwaves. And when I do, you know, uh, go to the bank and like look at the TV on the bank, I'm seeing an Ossoff ad most of the time. Or, or um, surprisingly, someone we haven't brought up, a damn movie, got endorsed by David Perdue. And so he has a ton of ads out of David Perdue um, endorsing him. I've seen that ad a lot as well. But my point <laughs> Just is. Just a, a side note on that, real quick. I saw a graphic on Rachel Maddow's show that had, it was showing the polling results for. 
each of the candidates in the race, the photo for Dan Moody's polling column had David Perdue on it. It didn't have That's Dan excellent. Moody on it. So I guess his donation really mattered a lot. Yes, Dan Moody is actually David Perdue. Um, but no, more, more importantly, yeah, he needs one. But But more importantly... I don't think it's impossible for us to win this thing straight out because there's a couple factors. One is there's too many Republican candidates. There's just too many of them. I almost bet you that you combine demoralized Trump voters and demoralized Republican voters in general. So you got demoralized Trump voters because things aren't going as well as they thought it would. You got demoralized Republicans who really don't like Trump. And then you have like, 11 candidates for them to choose from and they're like i don't i want to do this and so they stay home and they don't vote for any candidate and then ossoff's able to get a 50 percent plus one just barely and and wins this thing um now that being said i don't suspect that will happen i just want to make sure that it's firmly possible um and the reason is is because not only are like literally every Georgia Democrat that I know and some Republicans, all they talk about is this race and how well Ossoff is doing. I mean, I have even friends from campaigns that I worked in 2014 coming into the state and they're volunteering. They're not being paid. They've just, you know, they're coming down here to knock doors during get out the vote. And so this is going to be crazy, whatever happens, because I mean, if Ossoff doesn't win straight out, which is, the, to be completely fair and honest, the more likely scenario, the Republican that beats him might not even get above like 9%. They might be in single digits because there's so many Republican candidates and there's several of them that are strong contenders. And so it's just gonna, it's gonna be a really insane race. And the real question is, because I know Ossoff still has at least 3 million on hand from the last report I saw. Um, like, he's going to have a lot of money in that runoff too. And I don't know if the Republicans are going to be able to catch up with how much infrastructure and how much spending he's doing. It, they might not win. Um, but either way, and I think this is important to point out is regardless of what happens in Kansas tonight, what you guys who are listening will already know. And regardless of what happens to Ossoff next Tuesday, um, this doesn't really tell us anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's fun, it's academic to like see what happens, but like this does not guarantee that the Trump presidency is over. It doesn't guarantee that the House Republican congressional majority is over. Literally, the only thing it will tell us is who is going to be the next congressman or woman of the Georgia 6th congressional district, and that's it. Yeah, and I, I want to pour a little cold water on this. I know I always do this, but... Um, I'm fresh. You can't hear the songs of the people. I'm down in Georgia. I'm fresh. You in the Beltway. Well, I'm gonna make a very non-Beltway critique of the John Ossoff campaign that um, I find very ironic. I I am I y'all know this. I live up in D.C. and um, I'm I'm here in the D.C. bubble. I am frustrated by, but let me caveat it. I would like a Democrat. To win this race. I think a Democrat on most nearly all of the policy beliefs that I have is going to be better than a Republican as the representative of the 6th Congressional District of Georgia. The thing that is frustrating to me about John Ossoff's campaign 
I have no idea if he is running for the 6th Congressional District of Georgia or if he's running to be the representative of all of the podcast hosts and political pundits and Hollywood actors who care about fighting Trump. Now, in Ossoff's defense, it is very clear that there is one route to winning this congressional district this year, this race. It is to be the candidate that can channel anti-Trump enthusiasm into a victory at the ballot box. He's gotten a lot of outside money because he's got a lot of liberals who are upset. They want to do something about the Trump administration. All of your political podcasts, all of your liberal activists, they have pointed at the John Ossoff race and said, if you want to do something good for Democrats in opposition to Trump, the thing to do is to get John Ossoff elected. I have friends here in D.C. tonight that are at a phone bank for John Ossoff in a D.C. neighborhood um, because it is important to progressives to get John Ossoff elected. My frustration is that I have seen very little from the John Ossoff campaign to show me why he should be the congressional representative for the 6th District. In his messaging on his YouTube videos and the videos that I'm presumably making it into ads on TV, there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously a lot of messaging around being in opposition to Trump. And there's the idea that John Ossoff is going to be sort of a bipartisan representative in that he wants to cut wasteful spending, but he doesn't say what wasteful spending it is. He's uh, he's found a figure $16 billion that I can't find any connection to what that actually is. Um, he has also said, what was the other thing? Oh, he, he's also said that he's a big advocate of bringing in high tech jobs into the Atlanta area. Although <laughs> it was that one of his ads and we'll, we'll play the clip here. One of his ads basically just says this, I'm John Ossoff, and I'll work with anyone to do what's right for our country and Georgia. We need to attract more high-tech and research jobs to the area. So yeah, it doesn't even say Atlanta. It doesn't say Georgia. There is very little about what he's going to do for Georgia on his website, in his priorities. He's got a very persuasive section on the environment that talks about the importance of providing real solutions to climate change, but also as a representative of the 6th Congressional District, it would also be in your interest to protect the Chattahoochee River and to be an advocate for the environmental resources in the district. All of the messaging that I have seen is just this sort of bland national Democrat messaging. And the attack that's going to come against him from whatever Republican makes it into the runoff if we get to that point, is going to be the attack that's already happened, which is that he is a yes man for Nancy Pelosi. And the one thing that I think he could get out in front of to have going for him is that not only is he the candidate that's going to make Trump furious, he is also someone who understands and is ready to work for the 6th Congressional District. And if you end up having to make that argument against Bob Gray, who just seems like a Trump clone, it might actually make you more persuasive to the moderate Republicans in that district who rejected Trump when Hillary Clinton almost won that congressional district in the presidential race. So I don't I have this frustration that he is clearly influenced by the outside national money and he's willing to push national messaging. Um, But it's just not clear that he's running in Georgia. And I find that so, really frustrating. 
let me play devil's advocate and then come around to your line of thinking. Because I think both both of these things are definitely true. John Ossoff has the very unfortunate thing, and this is actually something he's pointed out. I've seen him point this out at public events. So I'm not, you know, spoiling any state secrets here. The timetable for this race is extremely short. There are people right now announcing that they're going to run against someone in 2018. Most people that run for office have like a year to build a message, build a team, and then articulate that message out to the people to the point where it gets to be a coherent message that people know why someone's running for this office, what they want to do. At best, John Ossoff could have woken up the day after the election and decided to run for this office, at which point he would have had like five months to decide to run, figure out that he's going to run, build his team, build a message, and do all the things you have to do in a campaign that most people do over a year. And I think it's pretty obvious that he did not make that decision the moment after the election and that it was sometime later in that. So a more realistic thing is he's had like four months. So when you have a campaign like that, and also he did not know that he was going to raise $8 million. He went into this thing with it being an insanely uphill fight. It takes time to develop a message like that, especially when you're a first-time candidate. It takes time to develop a message that really deeply knows all the local issues in a community like the 6th Congressional District. So I kind of give him a little bit of a pass on this because the only strong, coherent message that he had the time to put together that he could really hit is this message. And the other reason that is true is a big part of his message relates to his experience in foreign policy, which obviously has been debated about how big it is, but it is a part of his experience, regardless of how long he was doing it. Oh, I think just, and, to, just to pause on that point real quick, one yeah. of Ossoff's best moments in the debate that I watched was his response to a question of whether or not he was embellishing his record as a, a staffer in Congress, and then he named the bills that he worked on. It is totally viable to me from knowing people on the Hill and sort of knowing the roles that different people play that he contributed language to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is what he noted in in his response to the question. As a staffer, he contributed real language to bills that dealt with national defense in this country. I don't doubt that at all. Um, I think this mess about how long or not long he had his security clearance is, is just kind of whatever. It's kind of political nonsense. But that is, I think, the yeah. strongest part of his resume. Um, and I, I think that that is where, you know, he's he's legit there. Yeah, okay. So there's that, which we agree on. And then there's his career after Congress, which was the investigative filmmaking. What a big concern to a lot of people are what's going on with the Trump administration with corruption issues on one side and then the Russia stuff on the other side. And I think that is not in like, that's not a relevant message that he is someone who's strongly against corruption, that he's strongly against people using positions of power 
for their own personal gain or for their policy gain, and that that's something that he, as a congressman, will not accept and that he will fight really, really hard. I agree with you 100%. That is not a Georgia issue. That is a national issue. However, considering his background and considering the context in which this race is being fought and the amount of time he has... I think that's literally the only message that makes sense for John Ossoff to run on. Like, I don't think there's a better message that he could do under these circumstances. Now, if he wins or gets into the runoff and they don't have a little bit of a change and don't expand the message a little bit, then I'll be a little more critical. But at this point right now, I think this is the only move they actually have. And I think they're doing it really well. I think they're doing the path they have chosen really really well yeah and i i agree with you on that and i and i definitely recognize those constraints for john as he runs for this office i think you have to be very careful if you are thinking about how the georgia democratic party is going to carve into the republican majority in the congressional delegation that georgia has and if you're thinking about whether or not liberal politics, progressive politics is sort of on the rise in Georgia. This special election should not factor into your consideration of whether or not those things are happening. And the best oh, thing yeah, absolutely not. The best thing that John Ossoff could do if he wins this race, particularly if he wins it in on April eighteenth, on Tuesday, um is he needs to be a congressman for Georgia's sixth congressional district. If he does his constituent service work really well, if he puts forth legislation that is going to be good environmentally for the Chattahoochee River and other environmental assets in that district, if he really does come up with ways to either bring high-tech jobs to that district or to, you know, maybe even more importantly, provide federal funds to expand MARTA in that district, which would also facilitate bringing in some of these high-tech jobs. He has to show up in Congress and be a good representative for the 6th Congressional District. His butt will be gone in 2018 if he doesn't do those things. This is not a sustainable... I absolutely agree with that. It's not a sustainable way to build democratic politics in the state. Oh, absolutely not. And I think a big problem that we have is a lot of times the out-of-state money that we see flowing is connected to hiring decisions and staffing decisions. I think that's part of the reason that sometimes Georgia Democrat candidates that seem like they have the potential to be successful end up being in being less successful than they should be is because the people that don't know the state as well as they should end up having too big of a roles in the campaign. Um, but I, th- I think we beat up on poor John Ossoff enough. Uh, and uh, I think... Well, and just to, just to close out, just to be clear, I think, I think okay. he's a smart guy. His career path feels somewhat similar to mine, someone who grew up in Atlanta but did a lot of their substantive career work in Washington, went to school here in Washington, um, you know, and, and participated in sort of big high level policy issues in Washington, him way more than I have. Um, but. And that's why you're announcing that you're running for the Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running in the next special election. Yes. Wh- whatever special election is that someone's mad at Trump, I'm going to be there because that's a great ticket to Congress. But um, 
And the other thing, he has real substantive national security and international experience. One of the things that I think should be his pivot to why he should be a good congressman, especially if he wins this seat, is if he works well with the remainder of Governor Deal's term and whatever Republican or Democratic governor comes next and what is probably likely to be a relatively Republican legislature on increasing trade opportunities for the state of Georgia. He was, he was big on U.S.-China trade relations in, in terms of his congressional work. I think he's got to channel that experience, and I think it's good experience. I think he's a smart kid. He's a little bit older than me, but he feels like a kid compared to most politicians we talk about. Um, I think it'd be great if he does those things, but it would be the wrong lesson to learn for him to just say, I can be a national politician because I've got all this national money. Um, yeah, I, I agree concern. on that. And I'd be I'd be disappointed if that is the route they go because I don't think that'll be ultimately successful. Um, but speaking of campaigns, shall shall we move on to the governor's race? Yeah, let's let's hit this one quick. We've we've tortured our listeners with over two hours of audio this week. Um, yes. So the the statewide campaigns are heating up. We've got new candidates for governor and lieutenant governor. Casey Cagle has not officially declared, but it's the worst kept secret in Atlanta that he yeah, is going to be I, a candidate. Yeah, I feel like I saw something today about he uh, filed him some paperwork. Soon. Yeah, he filed. That's right. He filed. Some he paperwork. filed paperwork. His announcement is basically imminent. So we have a new candidate for lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, who would presumably succeed Casey Cagle in that role if he was to win that race. Um, I don't. Do we have any Democrats for that? No, no Democrats have announced yet for governor or lieutenant governor, but we do have at least one Democrat announced for secretary of state. Um, We've got R.J. Hadley, who is a county commissioner. Uh, He he has announced. And he's going to be in that race with the most well-known candidate, at least among state political circles, is Buzz Brockaway, who's going to be leaving his state house seat to run for secretary of state. Um, The... The most interesting thing that I will say to look forward to, because there's not a lot that we know about, we know we know about the candidates' backgrounds and all of that, but we don't really know how this race is going to develop. As we get into the latter half of this year, when everybody starts announcing and we get into next year's legislative session, there is a possibility that we could have both the leader of the state house and the leader of the state senate, David Ralston and Casey Cagle, running for governor while also leading the two chambers in the legislative session in 2018. And the state house democratic leader is running for governor as well. The second worst kept secret in the state of Georgia. So now we need to convince the state minority leader, Steve Henson to also run for governor. And then every single leader of both chambers would be running for governor. (laughs) That's a recipe for really great legislation. (laughs) It, it would make our next season of Peach Pot way more exciting. Yes. When we, although, I don't know. They'll probably kill every piece of legislation that goes through so that there's <laughs> nothing, nothing happens. To, no bills. Like, we just no decided bills. We just decided to cancel the legislative session for 2018. <laughs> we passed the budget, so now we can go home. They might even do it. David Ralston's yeah. dream would finally come true of just passing the budget and leaving. Well, what Congress does when they don't want to pass a budget is they pass a continuing resolution. That would be a... Maybe that's on the table for Georgia in yes. 2018. Also, also, as a sign of how long we've been talking, I checked back in in Kansas. And what's the matter in Kansas? Because good old Ron Estes, the Republican candidate, is now ahead. 
So we'll see how that develops uh, through the rest of our broadcast. But again, you guys will already know. This is this is a flash to pass to you guys. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to torture our listeners too much longer. Um, so I don't. So that that race is developing. It's going to be a lot of our off season for the legislative session coverage is going to be around what happens in that governor's race. Um, is there anything you want to so, say before we wrap up with our last topic of the week? Yeah, yeah, I, I have a good question for you because I want I want to frame it this way. Um, what do Democrats need to do to win? You think? Because Republicans, I'll I'll, I'll I'll give you some time to think about it by saying why I think Republicans need to avoid. So what Republicans need to avoid is going full Trump, I think, and not embracing some of the crazier stuff that happens in the state Senate. And basically what I suspect we're going to see is that there's going to be the pro Nathan deal caucus of people running and the anti Nathan deal caucus of people running. And if David Ralsting ends up getting in the race as he has been rumored to, then I think he's probably going to be the chairman of that caucus, and then Casey Cagle will probably be the chairman of the anti-Nathan Deal caucus. Could be totally wrong, but that's just sort of how I see everything being laid out. So the Republicans, I think, would do themselves a lot of favor if they stick with the Nathan Deal type. Because what's really interesting to me is that Nathan Deal despite being a Republican, did not do horribly with African-Americans. Like, he didn't do bad. And he's had a lot of support among some constituencies that you wouldn't think would vote for a Republican like Nathan Deal. It's also um, it's also worth noting that he is the 10th most popular governor in the country. I saw this number today. His approval rating is like 67%. The top governors in terms of approval this is kind of a crazy idea the top governors in terms of approval are republican governors in blue states so people like charlie baker in massachusetts uh hogan in maryland they sort of dominate the top of the most popular categories um but governor deal is one of the few very popular republican governors of a red republican state um, so it's and I think it, I think what it is is because unlike a lot of other states, and I think this is really important because the future of Georgia is really dependent on this, is Governor Deal has been moderate on some very important issues. On the gun can- legislation last session, he was very moderate, made a lot of Democrats happy and a lot of Republicans mad. He's maybe this been time pre- too. Hmm? Uh, so maybe this time too. Yeah, and maybe this time too. On uh, LBGT issues, while he's not been like a champion going out and on the ramparts, like pushing forward rights for gay people in Georgia, he's definitely kept back some of the people that would want to go after that those constituencies. And then on taxes, and I think this is very important, he's basically held the line that we kind of need to keep them where they are. And he actually, when asked what his one piece of advice to his successor would be, was to not mess around with the tax situation in Georgia too much. And speaking of Kansas, uh, that's a state that had not done that and has had pretty severe consequences for messing that up. And so I say all that to say it'll be interesting to see what path the Republicans choose, because I think 
in some weird ways, if they pick someone who's very, very anti-Nathan Deal, then a Democrat could be closer to Nathan Deal's politics than the potential successor to Nathan Deal. And I think this is a good place to get back to your question, what Democrats should do. I think the, at least early where we are now, particularly what we know, you know, politics on the state level is filtered through a national lens. And a lot of the success that Republicans have had in Georgia in recent years is to run against Barack Obama, Nancy Pelosi, and sort of the liberal national Democrats. That shoe is now on the other foot where Republicans are going to have to run on the record of their Republican president, Republican Congress. I think that one of the frustrations that we might sort of generally have by the time 2018 rolls around is that Republicans just aren't making a lot of progress on their priorities in the congressional level. Donald Trump is sort of still erratic. He's not, you know, making progress on what it is that he said he would do during the campaign. And the party that might be able to win the governor's race in 2018 is like the get shit done party. And so this is where I think I sort of would pin as an early interesting candidate, potentially early favorite on the Democratic side as Stacey Evans, because Stacey Evans can run on the record that she had as a bipartisan supporter of the Hope Scholarship Program, one of the most well-known and important programs in the state of Georgia. Um, And she can be a relatively progressive, but also relatively moderate female Democrat who is quite the contrast to this sort of dithering, go-nowhere Republican Congress, Republican president. And if she gets to run against the candidate most enthusiastic about defending Trump in the state of Georgia, I think she would have a real chance. If she has to run against David Ralston, who is also a great get-shit-done candidate, I think it's going to be a lot harder for Democrats, uh, just based on what we know now in the early stages. Yeah, I... Literally could not agree more with what you just said. That's 100% what I hope we do um, because I think that would be a really exciting campaign. Um, so that's that's definitely the route I'd like to see us go. And I think to some extent Abrams could take a similar route, but I feel like Abrams, some of the her more recent accomplishments at least were – partnering with Republicans to get the school turnaround bill through and sort of at least dropping Democratic opposition to that. I think she might be able to claim some credit for that. Um, I just, I don't know her actions at least haven't been in the vein of these popular programs in the way that like pre-K and hope are. And I think that Stacey Evans can make the really credible argument that like people who, would benefit from a great education at a technical college in Georgia are the same kind of people who have the same economic frustrations that led to the rise of Trump. And I think she can channel some of their economic frustrations in a way that maybe Stacey Abrams or, you know, Jason Carter might be kind of in the middle on this could not do. Um, So I don't, I think just from a narrative perspective, I think that they're, is a big opening for her. Um, but it, it will, I think, depend on, do we have a true primary on the democratic side where you have a real fair fight between potentially 
Evans, Abrams, and Carter, or two of the three? Or do we again go with kind of an anointed candidate in the way that Roy Barnes was, um, and to some extent in the way that Carter was in 20, Jason Carter was in the way in 2014? Um, yeah, well, uh, while in, in my role as Young Democrats president, I cannot endorse, and so I will not. Um, I will say I am in favor of a primary um, because I think it will make the candidate stronger at the end of the day, and it will get our message out better, and I think it will it can be very productive. There's definitely ways that primaries can be de- destructive, but I think... In this instance, the Democratic Party in the state of Georgia needs to have a conversation about where it's going to go in the future and what that future looks like. And I think having a primary is probably the best way that we can do that now. Um, so I think we'll leave the governor's race up there. Where uh, just to wrap up to some kind of kind of some closing thoughts, um, a big piece of news in the Atlanta area for commuters happened. I'm, I'm pretty sure, particularly if you're sitting in traffic and listening to us, you already know this, but there was the section of the I-85 bridge that collapsed. Um, there's been some chatter around whether or not the homeless man that was arrested and in, indicted on charges related to the collapse of the bridge should really be the scapegoat, or if the State Department of Transportation, who stored construction materials under the bridge that were ultimately the thing that caught on fire and burned hot enough to collapse that section of the bridge if they're the ones that should be held accountable here. But the the thing that I want to point out that I think is a relatively interesting and new development is that I, I think that this is a big opportunity for transit in the Atlanta area to prove its value. And you saw this with the volunteers that make up the MARTA Army they had a big turnout to help commuters who may not be familiar with MARTA learn how to take it, learn how to use it, figure out how schedules work and things like that. And I think there is an appreciation in a sense from MARTA leadership that if they can do well to supplement how bad traffic is going to be in the northeast Atlanta, the routes coming into Atlanta from the northeast along 85, that they could really go even further to prove that they are an organization and an entity worth state funding and worth being a major part of Atlanta's transportation plan going forward. So I think the silver lining for MARTA is that this is a really big opportunity. um, And this is one that I hope the system is ready to take on. Uh, So far from what I've been seeing, it's been going pretty well. So I think so far MARTA has stepped up to the plate and has really shown that they are a valuable resource. And so there's, there's a lot of conversations at the state house and, you know, this is something we ain't get to cover as much because it never really came, you know, never bubbled up to the surface, but there's a lot of conversation about getting Marga some more funding from the state. So I think we're getting closer and closer to that being reality. And so uh, I, I feel, I feel, I feel good about the future of transit in Georgia for sure. And just to underlie how important this opportunity is, Atlanta's sister transit system is really mostly considered to be the Washington transportation system, the metro up here in Washington. And the 
status of Metro in Washington the last two to three years has been terrible. They that Washington is a city that's you know a little bit bigger, uh, very different in terms of its composition, but a little bit bigger than the Metro Atlanta region. Um, it's a region that has grown tremendously in the last five years as a lot of young people like me have, have moved here for college and career and all of that. And ridership on Metro has actually decreased despite the fact that the city has added a whole bunch of people. The Atlanta system is about the same age. Um, some of the same management mistakes that have happened in Washington haven't happened in Atlanta. And so to me, at least as someone who lives in Washington, it is striking to see, I would have thought, Five years ago, you would look at Washington's metro system and say, that's what Atlanta needs to look at and try to be like. And I think the shoe is completely on the other foot right now where Atlanta's system feels like it's on the rise. It it feels better managed. It feels better promoted. And it feels like it is ready to step up when it's needed. And the Washington system literally has a website, is, Marta, is Metro on fire? Because we are, <laughs> we are concerned... <laughs> regularly about whether or not our transportation system is on fire. So I just wanted to note that because I never would have thought that that would happen. And on multiple occasions recently, I've been like, if you want to advocate for transit in Atlanta, do not bring them to Washington. Never bring them to Washington because we are like barely able to keep things together up here right now. I hope the system is much brighter. The future is much brighter in Atlanta than it is here. Uh, I just looked. The metro is not on fire. All right. Well, that's surprising. Just wait till tomorrow during the morning commute because it probably will be. Yes. Um, but with just that, like the the infamous, is it snowing in Athens? That's yeah. that's another favorite website. Um, but with that, I think we will wrap this up for the week. Uh, we thank you for tuning into our two part. It's been a while special, um, and we will talk to you again relatively soon this is the sort of unofficial conclusion of season two of peach pod but we've got some new ideas that we're going to try some different kinds of content in the off season so yet again if you're still with us if you want to give us some feedback reach out to us on twitter at peach ga reach out to us on email peachpod.podcast at gmail.com um, let us know your feedback what you want to see in the off season what you want to see about us covering the governor's race and we will incorporate it and bring it into season three and all of our subsequent and, peach potting. And I'm going to get that explainer done, Kyle. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're going to catch up mission on all creep. the things. We had some serious mission creep, and I was overly ambitious about how long it was going to take me to do it. So those and much other you know, cool projects will come out slowly but surely. They, they will, it will happen. It's going to be an exciting summer for peach pot, so we hope you all will stay tuned. And we will talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.